Well, welcome back to our study of the book of Acts. As you know, we're traveling with Paul, the Apostle Paul. We're moving through his missionary journey. As is our custom, let me just remind you, you can text your questions in to this number during class, and we try to answer as many questions as we can. In fact, it's one of the better parts of the class to know what's on your mind and what avenues we can really address. We have been, let me put up a map just to show you where we have been. This is a map of Paul's second missionary journey. It's from about 49 to roughly 51 AD. And Paul takes off from Antioch in Syria, and he moves through Asia Minor, what's now modern-day Turkey. We followed him to Troas on the coast of Turkey where he picked up Luke, if you remember, then across the sea into Greece. So he's in Philippi, and we saw the scene of the Philippian jailer and Lydia, the woman who was the dealer in purple. He moved from there to Thessalonica. You see him moving across the Roman road. We talked about how the Roman roads became kingdom roads for Paul because that's how he was going to spread the word. And so he moves uh, east to west, Thessalonica. At Thessalonica, he has a big problem, and he has to disrupt his schedule, and he moves to the south. He sails down to Athens. Let me show you a close-up of southern Greece. And so this is a close-up of southern Greece, and he's in Athens. He is there, if you remember, arguing with the philosophers because while he was in Athens, he saw all the idolatry, and it really bothered him. It said it, was, it apparently was a bit of an impromptu sermon, so the idolatry bothered him. He began to speak against it. And a council known as the Areopagus, a group of people who were in charge of overseeing this kind of thing, brought him to the Areopagus, or Mars Hill, for an examination. This is what we were talking about last time. This is a picture from the Acropolis, the high point in the city where the Parthenon is, looking right down on the Areopagus. Areopagus, if you remember, Ares is the Greek god of war. Pagus means hill, so it's the hill of Ares, the god of war. Roman god of war was Mars. So Areopagus, Mars Hill, exactly the same thing. It's the hill of the god of war, but that's where the council met. And they brought him there, and he began to interact with the philosophers of the time. One thing I'd like to add before we go on, because as Paul moves on through the Greek world, you're going to see something begin to happen with how he interacts with them. And I know that in our world, we think of Paul's sermons, and we think of the gospel, and we think, oh, they're probably people like us, and they're hearing this news about Jesus Christ. Nothing could be further from the truth. They were nothing like us in the sense of what they believed and what they grew up with. Now, in some sense, we too come to the gospel with various beliefs that, uh, that we've gotten growing up. But you need to understand what they're thinking because it's going to be essential to understand how the churches are going to work in these cities, uh, especially as we move on to Corinth. So I want to tell you a, a brief story. This is, uh, again, a map of the ancient world. Let me show you, uh, go back in history a little bit. Right north of Troas, over here on the coast of Turkey. We talked to you about 30 miles north of Troas is the ancient city of Troy. According to legend, and actually according to some archaeology and a lot of history, is there was something that happened at Troy, the Trojan War, according to myth. It turns out that one of the princes of Troy had stolen the uh, 
wife of Menelaus, and he went to get her back. He got his brother Agamemnon from here in Crete, and they also sailed together. They gathered all of the armies of Greece, and they converged on Troy. This happened, likely, about 1194 B.C., some, this tro, whatever the truth behind the Trojan War is, whatever historical kernel in that myth exists, happened about 1194. Well, it was formative for the Greek mind. A few hundred years later, Homer would record this in the Iliad and the Odyssey, and it became the template for Greek thinking about the gods. It became the template for chivalry and conduct. One of the things I want to highlight, I want to tell you the story of one of the guys who is uh, in the Trojan War. His name is Odysseus. Odysseus is a king of a small Greek kingdom, and he also owed allegiance to Agamemnon. So when all the Greeks sailed to go get Helen back from the Trojans and lay siege to Troy, he went with them. Odysseus was not a great fighter, but Odysseus was known for something that the Greeks valued almost as much, if not more, than martial ability, and that was his cleverness. Odysseus as he got there and they realized that they're not going to be able to take Troy. They spent 10 years on the beaches of Troy trying to overcome the city. And as the Iliad opens in the last year of that siege, you begin to see all the drama happening with Achilles and Hector and the great warriors. But at the end of the day, they're not able to get over those walls. So Odysseus comes up with a plan. This is something that we still know today. He said, I tell you what, let's build a monument a horse because the Trojans are horsemen and they'll like that. And so they do. Here's a picture uh, from the 19th century. The one on the right, by the way, is the uh, prop from the movie Troy, which I highly recommend, by the way. It's a great movie. It actually does a historical justice to the events. So what he said was, let's make a, a monument to them and we'll sail away and they'll think we gave up and we're honoring them with this. And instead, what they did was they made the model of the horse, they put some men inside, and they just sailed around the corner, basically, and waited till nightfall. It was a risky plan, because it's entirely possible the Trojans would come out and go, oh, this is awesome, we're going to just burn this to the gods, and yeah, set that thing on fire and offer it to the gods, in which case, you know, Odysseus would have been toast. But it was a good risk, because they were pretty vain, and they just won, and so they said, let's haul it inside the city, and it's going to become a monument to how great our gods are that defeated these lowly Greeks. So they haul it inside the city, nighttime comes, fleet sails back around the corner and gets all the army there, men jump out, open the doors, and Troy is destroyed. That credit to Odysseus's cleverness was very much valued by the Greeks. And so as Paul's talking to the philosophers on Mars Hill, they're very much into the rational faculties. We talked about the Epicureans, we talked about the Stoics. There are many other schools of philosophy, but they all valued that ability to discern the truth. They loved cleverness. And so Odysseus is a great hero because of his cleverness. You're gonna see Paul react a little differently when he gets to Corinth. Let me read a passage from uh, 1 Corinthians to you. He's going to say this, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He said, The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. And he goes on and he said, Where are the wise man? He said, The wisdom of the world did not know God, so it pleased God through the foolishness of what we preach. Because to the Greeks it's foolishness, this idea of resurrection. If you remember in our last lesson, the Areopagus, when they got to the part where he said, Look, Paul said, 
God was lenient with you before because of your ignorance, but no longer, and now he's going to judge the world through this man whom he raised from the dead to prove to you. And it said many of them sneered at him. They just mocked him for this idea of raising him from the dead. Some believed. And so he goes on, he said, we preach Christ crucified. He said the Jews want to see miraculous signs, and the Greeks want to see something clever. They like wisdom. He said, but we preach Christ crucified. And he said we did it for a reason. He said, I decided that I wasn't going to preach anything in Corinth except Jesus and him crucified so that your faith might not rest in uh, the wisdom of men, but it would rest in the power of God. So the Greeks valued this cleverness. It was just a cultural trait to them. And you see that in Athens. We're going to see it again in a little different way when we move to Corinth. So after this, after he leaves Athens, go back into our text now. Paul went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila. He's a native of Pontus who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath, every Saturday, he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade both Jews and Greeks. So he's going to go across uh, just 50 miles west of Athens to Corinth. Corinth sits on a little isthmus, a little thin strip of land that separates the Adriatic Sea on the west from the Aegean Sea on the right. And Corinth, we'll talk a little bit more about Corinth in a moment, but I want to introduce you to the people that Paul is going to preach to in Corinth, because when he comes to Corinth, he has left Athens, which is the intellectual and cultural center of the Roman Empire, and he's now come into the commercial and political center of all of Greece. Corinth, sitting literally on a little isthmus, three and a half miles wide at its nearest part. You've got ships coming in from the west, ships coming in from the east, hugely commercial. I mean vastly rich and powerful. And that's what he's dealing with. But I want to give you an insight into how they thought about things. Because when Paul moves into Corinth, he's dealing with people who grew up vastly different than he did. And I want to tell you another story that ties into Corinth. And this is something all the Corinthian kids would have learned in school. This is something they believed was true. So I want you to see not only their interest in the cleverness, I want you to see their interaction with their gods. I'll tell you the myth of Sisyphus. This is something that you may have, have heard of before, but it's a very instructive in understanding how the Greek world, the pagan world, thought about the world. Sisyphus was the first king of Corinth. Sisyphus was not a nice guy. He basically stole his brother's throne. He seduced his niece. He was famous for abusing travelers, people that would come through Corinth. At that time, it was still a good seaport. When they would come through, if they had a lot, he'd kill them and take what they had. So it even violated the Greek ideas of hospitality. He wasn't a heroic character whatsoever, but he was the first king of Corinth. But Homer writes of him as being one of the craftiest people around. Again, he's one of the cleverest guys around. Well, he ends up getting himself in trouble by his poor behavior because it turns out that Zeus, the king of the gods, has uh, desired the daughter of the river god. Her name is Aegina, and she wouldn't uh, marry him or give herself to him, so he raped her and then tried to keep it silent. Well, Sisyphus knew that, and so Sisyphus tried to blackmail Zeus by letting this word out. And so Zeus was a little humiliated by all the other gods, but instead of being blackmailed, Zeus sends his brother Hades, who is the god of the underworld, 
And by the way, in Greek mythology, they basically personify things. So Hades is the word for the place you go when you die. It's uh, the underworld. Think of it like going from color television in HD to black and white on a tiny little set. It's just a bland place. In fact, most of the, most of the times in the New Testament, where what's translated hell is actually Hades because everybody in that world understood, oh, after you die, you go to Hades. It's a place we don't know exactly what happens, but you sort of wander around and it's not very pleasant, right? It's sort of like you know, following your wife around Walmart shop. It's just sort of living hell. You know, you just basically are just stuck there, right? So that's what they thought it was. Well, they personified it. And so there was also a god named Hades, who was the god of the underworld. And so Zeus had his brother Hades. He said, you go get Sisyphus and you just bring him back to hell. We're going to end his life right now. He's coming to Hades. And so he did, brought him back to Hades and gave him to Thanatos. Thanatos is the Greek word for death. They've also personified it. It's a guy who's actually death. If you want to think about the grim reaper coming to get people, that's Thanatos, basically. He is death, and he's the personification of death. He's kind of a lesser god. He's kind of the black sheep of the family because, let's face it, he lives in Hades. And he's apparently not very bright. So Sisyphus, uh, Hades hands him over to Thanatos and says, chain him up. And so Sisyphus says, Thanatos, you don't get enough credit for what you do. They just do not appreciate you enough. This is not as easy as it sounds. I mean, look at these chains, Thanatos. Not everybody could operate them. I mean, show me how these things work. So Thanatos, yeah, nobody's ever taken an interest in my work. So he chains himself up and shows it to him, and Sisyphus says, that's just brilliant. But now you're chained up, I'm not, see you later. And he escapes, and he goes back home. And so Thanatos is all tied up. Well, that begins to cause a problem in the Greek world because if Thanatos is tied up, Grim Reaper can't come for anybody, nobody can die. And so Ares, the god of war, he's orchestrating all these wars with humans. He gets really mad because no one can die because Thanatos isn't showing up. So he goes to check to see what's going on, realizes what's happened, told Zeus about it, and Zeus is furious about this. He said, Hermes, get him, bring him back here. Sisyphus is living his life, but he knows it's not going to last. He knows that sooner or later they're going to figure out what he's done. So he tells his wife, he says, now, when I die and they take me back to Hades, don't have a funeral. I want you to throw my body out into the street and just let it lay there. She says, are you serious? He goes, yeah, trust me. Oh, sure enough, Hermes comes, gets him, drags him back, puts him in the underworld. Hades says, guards on this guy. He is not getting away this time. Well, Hades is married to a nice girl named Persephone. Persephone deserved better, but that's a long story. But basically, she's married to the god of the underworld. And so one day, she's kind of talking to Sisyphus, and he's saying, you should really deserve better out of life. And you know, so do I, he says. Have you realized what my wife did? She didn't give me a funeral. She didn't do any of the funeral rites. I'm so disrespected. This is horrible. And she says, you're right. He said, if only I could go back there and punish her for that and get a decent funeral. So Persephone, whose heart's breaking for him, lets him go. And so he goes back home again. He's tricked them again. He goes home, lives his life. Zeus finds out. Zeus is absolutely furious. He says, all right, here's the deal. When you die, I have a plan for you. So he lives his life out and he dies. He goes to Hades. And Zeus basically said to him, from now on to eternity, you Sisyphus are condemned to rolling a huge boulder up a mountain. And just before it gets to the top, it'll roll back down again. 
and then you'll go back down to the bottom and you'll roll it up again. And he was condemned for all of eternity because of how he had fooled the gods to do that. And so you see there a great picture of the idea of Sisyphus. This is where, here's what Homer has to say. He says, and I saw Sisyphus in agonizing torment, trying to roll a huge stone to the top of a hill. He braced himself and push it towards the summit, but just as he was about to heave it over the crest, its weight overcame him, and then down it came again. And he would wrestle again and lever it back until the sweat poured from his limbs and the dust swirled around his head. This is where we get our word, a Sisyphean task. A Sisyphean task, and I had a lot of these when I was at AT&T, were basically really hard things that you do that are completely pointless, right? I probably have a few of those in ministry as well. These are things that you just really work hard at, but in the end, you know that it's not going to make any difference whatsoever. It's just going to roll back down the hill. And so this is the myth of Sisyphus. Well, what's my point in this? My point is, think about what that tells you. This is what they grew up knowing. Think about what that tells you that they value, the cleverness, but think about what they think of the gods. The gods are also human beings on steroids. In other words, they're basically just large, more powerful human beings, but they also have the foibles of human beings also writ large onto the page. You see jealousy, you see rape, you see uh, all these different machinations and plots and plans, and that's how they thought the gods were. They didn't think of the gods as anybody that cared about them. They thought of the gods as somebody you just sort of tried to keep them happy, you know, and so nothing bad would happen to you. And so this is what, when Paul goes into Corinth, this is what he's encountering. People who believe these myths to be true, and that's their view of the world. So, let's move on, and we'll get to the, uh, I want to talk to you a little bit about how that's going to play itself out. So now, he goes into Corinth, goes into one of those cosmopolitan places around, and he uh, meets Aquila and Priscilla who had recently come from Italy because Claudius had ordered the Jews to leave Rome. One of the things we've been talking about as we go through Acts is the chronology and the historicity of Acts. And it was long thought that the book of Acts was unreliable as a historical document. I showed you uh, some archaeology in the past 50, 60 years that have lent a lot of credence to it. And that's typically what happens in the Bible. People say, that's not what happened historically. You dig up some more stuff and you go, oh, I guess it was what happened historically. This is important for the dating. This one little clause that Claudius kicked the Jews out of Rome. So Priscilla and Aquila, a married couple, never mentioned separately, by the way, in the Bible. Really powerful lesson there about doing ministry together. That happened likely about 50 A.D., that Claudius got upset. Suetonius, in his History of the Caesars, writes this, though this is worth knowing why he kicked the Jews out. He kicked the Jews out of Rome because of riots over somebody named Christus. Well, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? He doesn't know who these people are. He just knows that they're arguing about this guy named Christus. Christus would be the Greek word for Christ. And so they're pronounced really similar. He said there's some Christus that they're arguing about, and they're having these riots, so I just kicked them all out of Rome. What's happened? The gospel has come to Rome, and what Paul has seen happen before, some of the Jews believed and others of the Jews became violently opposed to it, and Rome begins to see riots over Jesus Christ. And so he expels them, and that happens, we know, about 50 AD. So what's happening here is why you date this missionary journey, by the way, to this time. This is about 51, maybe 52 AD when Paul is here. Well, let's talk a little bit just about... Uh, Corinth. Corinth, like I said, is a very commercial city, 
Corinth sits on an isthmus, and Nero, in a few years after our events, a few years after 52, he becomes uh, emperor in 54, he's going to try to dig a canal across that three and a half miles, and he fails miserably. This is a picture of that canal, though, that was finally built in the 1800s. A massive task. Again, Nero failed, failed several times through history, but now there is a canal that connects the Adriatic and Aegean seas through that three and a half miles. What they did in Paul's time is the ships would come up on one shore, they'd unload them, put them on uh, wagons, they'd take them across the three and a half miles and load them on another ship for a while. But you can see how Corinth is sitting in a perfect place to be taxing everything around. Corinth was also a city that had a lot of uh, idols. This is the ruins of the Temple of Apollo, absolutely magnificent. Apollo was the patron god of Corinth. Just like in Athens, Athena was the patron goddess of that city. The Parthenon is a temple to Athena. Actually, there's several temples to Athena. Here, there's several temples to Apollo. Apollo's the sun god. He's also a victorious warrior. He's an archer. And so they saw themselves as, as being protected by the god Apollo. This is a really magnificent ruin area in the temple and then a little closer view of Apollo. So you have not only commercial traffic there, you also have tourist traffic in a sense. You have people coming to worship. It's one of the great centers of the Greek world. And as I've told you before, everywhere that you have a lot of people, you need facilities. This is a nice marble restroom uh, here in Corinth. And uh, we've explained the way these things work, and so you see, my point is, you would have had the gymnasium. We talked about the Greek gymnasium, places where they would come. It was a social center. They would have had public baths. They would have had pictures everywhere of these stories of the gods, the story of Sisyphus, the story of the Trojan horse. All of these things are written around. Their culture is infused in them, these ideas. And that's where Paul comes. The Acropolis... Every ancient city had a high place. And so they started, as the city started in the high place, as a fortified city so you could defend yourself. But then pretty quickly, they no longer needed it. They became powerful enough. But just like in Athens, there's the Acropolis with the temples, same in Corinth. It's called the Acro-Corinth or the Acropolis. It's in other words, the high point of the city. The Acro-Corinth has a temple that you can see on the corner there of Aphrodite. Aphrodite is the goddess of love. And so when you're in the city, I'll show you a slide in a minute, wherever you are in Corinth, you can see the, this. It's about 2,000 feet higher than the city, and you can see this temple to Aphrodite. Think of it in those days as being white and gorgeous and beautiful, and you can tell what the city values. You see the temple of Apollo. You see all the pictures of the Greek gods. You see Aphrodite, the goddess of love. When you walk in, you can tell what a city values. That's the same as true today. When you walk in New York City, just look around a little bit, and pretty quickly you'll see what do we value, particularly when you go downtown. When you go into the center of a city, what do you find? Center of every Greek city was the Agora, the marketplace. We did business there. City, center of every Jewish town, synagogue, place for God. And so you see the clash of these cultures happening. And I want you to understand this for a couple of reasons. One is... How do you present the gospel to a culture that is completely ignorant of that, that sees it completely differently? And you'll see how Paul is going to do it. We saw it in Athens, the way he spoke to the Athenians. 
You see how he's speaking to the Jews in a different way. And it's a real testimony to how we don't change the truth, but you basically start where people are. He began with them with what they believed. He said, you believe a lot of things that aren't true. He said, but you got a couple of things right, and let's start there. And he begins to preach. The other thing is, is that the gospel is exploding. We tend to think we need to pretty the gospel up a little bit to make it appealing to these cultures. Paul's not prettying the gospel up. He says, I'm just going to preach Christ crucified. He said, I'm going to come into the most cosmopolitan city in the world, and I'm going to just preach Christ crucified, and let's just see what happens. He said, I'm not going to base this on the wisdom of men. I'm not going to try to prove you that the world was really created in six days or 14.7 million years. He just said, I'm just going to tell you about Jesus Christ raised from the dead, and this is a truth, and God is going to hold us accountable for that. He loved us enough to give us a way to be reconciled to him. He said, that's my message, and that's what I'm going to do. Sometimes we think, no, nah, that message won't work. You know, you can't reach our culture with that. They've got television. They've got this. They've got that. I want you to think about the Corinthians. They've got all these other ideas. And you're going to say, that's going to be meaningless to them. But it wasn't, was it? Caused riots in Rome. They're trying to kick him out of uh, Thessalonica. They tried to stone him and left him for dead in Lystra, in Turkey. Everywhere he goes, the reason they're reacting to him is the gospel's so powerful. So many people are resonating with it. God is drawing people to the gospel. So one of the powerful lessons about Paul in Corinth to me and in this whole world is we sometimes think we have to pretty the gospel up and put it into a form that they'll, they can accept. And Paul said, no, that's not what I'm going to do. I'm just going to tell you the gospel and God's going to make it grow. And sure enough, it did. Well, in the city of Corinth, uh, here's looking down from that Acropolis, down into the, the city area. He says this, he says, when Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul stopped making tents, and this is where you know Paul's a tent maker. Tent maker, by the way, probably because he's from Tarsus in the province of Cilicia, probably made tents out of cloth, but also could have been a leather worker. And the interesting thing here is he's working to support himself. One of the reasons, by the way, he's working to support himself is we've talked about the Epicurean philosophers. We talked about the Stoic philosophers. There were also philosophers called cynics, C-Y-N-I-C. That's where we get our word cynical. They questioned everything. They were cynical. But basically, the cynic philosophers were what are called peripatetic, meaning they're traveling preachers. They would come into the city and they would speak, and they were such good speakers that people would pay to listen to them speak, and people would pay to be taught by them how to live a good life how to keep the gods happy, how to make sure things go well for you. Think of the cynics as prosperity theology, basically, in the old world. So they'd come in and they would get money, and then they would move on. So people were a little bit skeptical of preachers coming in and starting to teach you and then say, okay, well, how much is this going to cost me? And notice what Paul does. The same thing he's done everywhere else in Acts. He undercuts that. He gets a job, and he works, and he doesn't charge them anything. And they're like, whoa, in the Greek world, that's kind of unusual. Remember when he brought Timothy along with him? Timothy wasn't circumcised because his mother was a Jew, so he was Jewish, but his dad was a Greek, so he was never circumcised. Paul said, you know, if you were a Gentile, they wouldn't expect that, but I'm going to take you into some synagogues with me, and they're going to go, whoa, this kid's Jewish, and he's not circumcised. Paul, what, what kind of people are you hanging around with? So he had Timothy circumcised. Not because he needed to be, but because it helped further the gospel. 
So whether it's with the Jews or it's with the Greeks, Paul is trying to remove barriers. Again, notice, he's not trying to pretty the gospel up. He's not trying to package it. He just wants to remove any barriers. And so here, one of the barriers is that he would be seen as one of these cynic philosophers who are here saying, I'll solve all your problems, but you're going to need to pay me for it. And he says, we'll just take that off the table. And he does. Well, he did what he always did. He went into the Jews first. He said he devoted himself to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. Christ is the Greek word for Messiah. He was the Jewish Messiah. But the Jews opposed Paul and became abusive. He shook out his clothes in protest, and he said, listen, your blood is on your own heads. He said, I am clear of my responsibility. From now on, I'm going to the Gentiles. He left the synagogue, and he went next door. Now, that's interesting. Think about this. What would happen if somebody in a church staff today went next door and started a church? That's kind of an in-your-face sort of thing to do, isn't it? Yeah, okay, this is an in-your-face sort of thing to do. I want you to understand it's not all just shake your hands and say, okay, brother, it's, uh, sorry you don't believe the gospel, I'll see you later. Paul is an aggressive guy, and he's bringing the truth. He feels a sense of urgency, goes to the Jews first, knowing they're going to beat him up. Every town he's gone in, he's preached to the Jews, many of them have believed, and the rest of them beat him up or put him in jail in Philippi or stone him in Lystra, run him out of town in Thessalonica, but he still goes back, doesn't he? Because he loves them. But at the end of the day, he shakes off his clothes and says, I'm done with you guys. You won't believe the truth. Your blood is on your own head. It kind of reminds you of Ezekiel, the Old Testament prophet back in Ezekiel 33, where God says to him, Ezekiel, here's your deal. He said, you're the watchman. You go warn them of what's coming. He says, if you don't warn them and they die, then the, their blood's on your head too. He said, but if you warn them and they die, they don't believe, then you're innocent of their blood. And that's what Paul's doing. The Jews would understand this. They're like, okay, he's telling us, Ezekiel was telling everybody, hey, you better turn around and repent because the Babylonians are coming and they are not nice. And he said, so what's Paul saying? Paul's saying, you need to repent because the kingdom of God is here and listen to the good news. This Jesus, the Messiah, has been raised from the dead and has made a way for you to be right with God. That's the good news. He said, and so he's telling us, same thing, catastrophe is coming if you don't turn around and he's doing what Ezekiel did. And so he's trying to bring this image to their mind, but he's also serious. He's like, I'm done with you guys. I've done my duty and now I'm getting ready to go. That brings me to a second point that I think is really important to us. The first point was, Paul's not prettying up the gospel. He's not packaging it so that they'll like it better. He's just gonna tell them the gospel. He's gonna do everything he can to try to connect with what they actually believe is true. He's gonna remove any barriers that he can remove, but his message is not prettied up. Second lesson is very similar to that, is he doesn't think that it's his job to convert people. You understand what I'm saying? Think about this. Here's modern day church. I'm being a little hard on modern day church, so take this with a grain of salt. Modern day church. Go in and speak to people and realize, man, they're just not accepting this. We must be doing something wrong. Maybe we need more laser lights. Maybe we need better fog machines. Maybe we need different music. Maybe we need different hours. Maybe we need pony rides, you know, in the narthex so their kids will enjoy coming here. Now, I'm being a little tongue-in-cheek, but my point is that was not Paul's attitude, was it? Paul didn't say, you guys don't believe I must be preaching it badly. He said, no, you know what? Your blood's on your own head. 
I've communicated this in a clear way to you. Paul understood it wasn't up to him to convert people. Paul's job was to lovingly, and he clearly lovingly, perseveringly goes the extra mile to give this message to people. That's his job. The Holy Spirit's job is to change hearts and draw people. You see that over and over again in the book of Acts. It says, and God drew people to him. We saw it in, uh, with Lydia. He said, God opened Lydia's heart so that she would hear what Paul had said. That's important to us for two reasons. One, you don't need to put any varnish or paint the gospel story. You don't need to pretty up your testimony of, well, let me just tell you what Jesus has done for me. Many of us can't say, well, I was in prison and I was addicted to drugs and uh, I'd killed 75 people and then Jesus got a hold of my heart and I'm an unbelievable story. Okay, I hope not many of you can actually say that. But my point is this, you sometimes think, I don't have a story. You know, Jesus has done powerful things in my life, but it's not very, you know, dramatic. That's okay. You don't need to paint the gospel. You just need to tell the gospel. Let me just tell you what Jesus Christ has done for me. And secondly, I want you to relax. We talk a lot about go tell your story in the world. I want you to relax knowing it's not up to you and it's not up to me to convert people. It's not up to us. If they say, I don't believe what you say, I'm going to argue with you, you can't answer all my questions, we tend to feel guilty and go, oh no, I've done something wrong. Remember what Paul said in Corinthians? He said, the foolishness of what we tell people is not always going to resonate with them. And so powerful lessons. Number one, you don't need to sugarcoat the gospel. You don't need to pretty it up. You can just tell your story. And number two, you can relax and just tell your story because God will do the work with it. It's not up to us to convert people. There's another interesting uh, event here. It said, Paul left the synagogue. He went next door to the house of Titius Justus. That's a guy with a Roman name. He's a Gentile. He was a worshiper of God, though. But Crispus, the synagogue ruler, I mean, the head of the synagogue, and his entire household believed in the Lord. And many of the Corinthians who heard him believed and were baptized. Again, what do you see happening? He just presents the gospel, and God does great things with it. God is the one that's growing this church. And then one night he spoke to uh, Paul in a vision and he said, uh, no one's going to attack you or harm you. I have many people in this city. And so Paul stayed there for uh, 18 months. This is probably the, this is the longest he stayed anywhere at this point in time because he's in the center. He's like in the New York City of their world and he's like, I'm going to spend 18 months here and we're really going to get some uh, good. He's figuring Paul never spends anywhere anytime because they're going to beat him up and throw him out of town. And God says, not this time. You can actually stay for, go ahead and rent an apartment this time, Paul, because you're going to get to stay for a little while. And so he does. By the way, this is another one of those uh, interesting uh, historical facts. I want to show you one thing here. In the book of Romans, when he's writing to Rome, he's doing it from here. And so at the end of Romans, in chapter 16, you see a lot of greetings. And in Romans 16, 23, actually, I'll just tell you what it says. This is pretty interesting. He says, now Gaius, who's my host, I'm staying at his house here in Corinth, uh, and to the whole church, he has a church that meets in his house too, he greets you. And Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Quartus also send you greetings. So he's in Corinth, he's writing to Rome. This guy Erastus. By the way, here's another interesting thing. He says he's the city treasurer. Well, that's a pretty important job. In Corinth, found this stone. And uh, you'll you actually be able to read this, uh, but you can see the E-R-A-S-T, and then that V is a U, and the S. You see Erastus on the left, and on the right, you'll see a word on the top line, A-E-D-I-L. 
adile. Roman word adile is the treasure. And so here's an inscription in Corinth that says, and this is actually an inscription saying Erastus, the city treasurer, gave the money to build this, this building that they found it in. But the point is, there's a guy named Erastus, he's a city treasurer, and here's Paul talking about this guy in Corinth. And so you begin to see just little pieces, you know, of uh, Claudius expelling the Jews from Rome over Christus and Erastus, the city treasurer. In Macedonia, we saw that the peculiar name they used for the city council, sure enough, turns out to be what they did. I also want you to see the authenticity of this as we move through it. So you begin to see Paul having great success here, but it doesn't last forever. Our story goes on, and it says, while Gallio was proconsul of Achaia. So proconsul is like, think Pontius Pilate. He's the governor. It's a little different, but basically he's in charge of this area. Achaia is Greece. It's the place where Athens is. It's the place where Corinth is. It says, while he was proconsul, so this is about 18 months after Paul's been there, the Jews made a united attack on Paul, and they brought him into court. This man they charged is persuading people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. We've already seen this happen throughout the Greek world and the Roman world in Thessalonica, and you saw it in Philippi. They're accusing him of something that he's absolutely guilty of, and that is convincing people there's another king besides Caesar. And we talked about this, what that actually meant then and what it means now. As we go teach people, there's somebody else who's Lord of your life. We will always come into conflict with the secular authorities. And that's what's happening to Paul. So the Jews realize, man, this gospel is spreading. And so many Jews have believed, even our synagogue ruler, think our elder chairman has believed and gone off, right, to do this. And now all these Gentiles have believed, we got to do something about this Paul guy. We got to get him killed. And the only way we can do that is get the Romans to kill him or at least put him in jail. So they go accuse him before the proconsul who's there. And just as Paul was about to speak, Gallio said to the Jews, if you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names and your law, just settle this thing yourselves. I will not be a judge of such things. Now think about what's happening in the Roman world. There's another powerful little message here. And that is in Rome... Claudius sees riots among the Jews, probably Jews trying to lynch Christians, and he goes, I don't know what's up with these Jews. He doesn't know the difference between Jews and Christians at this point. Let's just kick all the Jews out of the city. Here you have Gallio, he says, you talking about Christians, Jews, I don't know who these people are. You're all just Jews to me, and it's not my problem. I'm not listening to this kind of stuff. You guys settle this thing yourself. We talked before about Paul using his civic responsibilities, his civic rights, being a citizen, and he used that to his advantage in preaching the gospel. He is going to use this to his advantage as well. He's not manipulative. He's not trying to be crafty. He just realizes the Romans are not going to get after us because they don't want to mess with this. Bonus. Let's get out there and spread the word. Now, that's not going to last. You're going to see here in a few chapters where the Romans kind of wise up and go, wait a minute, there's a special group of people called Christians, and they're the ones saying that Caesar's not really the king. But for now, Paul's going to use that. And so he's emboldened by the fact that the Roman authorities won't oppress Christians. It's just the Jews. So he's got a license to preach anywhere he wants to. 
And again, there's a powerful lesson for us in that, is we live in a country where it is at the moment still okay for us to preach the gospel. And it's important that we take advantage of that because the time is coming, like for Paul, when it may not be. And the fact that we can preach it and have strong Christian communities in America is indeed a beacon to the world. What Paul sets up here through uh, Turkey and into Greece, this is going to become the core of the church for the next 200 years when all the persecution happens. And so what we're doing in America may very well be the core of the next generation of the church. And we need to be as wise as Paul is. We need to take advantage of our civic rights in order to be able to do this. By the way, one more archaeological tie-in, because I do want you to see the authenticity and the, and the accuracy of the Bible. Gallio is known from history. His brother, by the way, was Seneca. Seneca is a well, Seneca and his dad's name Seneca too. But bottom line, they're both philosophers. They're pretty well known, and that's his brother. So he's known from writings in Seneca. He's also known from Tacitus, who's a Greek historian, who chronicles his career and says, sure enough, he was proconsul here. We know when he was proconsul here. He was proconsul right in this era. This is probably 52 AD when this is happening. And that's, by the way, how you date most of the book of Acts, are from incidental little clues like this. Gallio was proconsul here, and he would have come to Corinth, and the way the Romans judged people is they would sit up on this high platform called a bima, and they would sit up above the people. They're Romans, right? They're trying to intimidate anybody. They'd sit up on top of this high platform, and people would come down below to them, and uh, basically they would give them judgment. That has been found. This is from the time of Paul. That is the ruins. It would have been just a little higher than that. It's made of marble, and it would have been gorgeous. That is the Bema in Corinth. By the way, in the background, you see that hill? That's the Acro-Corinth. That's the uh, top of Corinth. And that's where the temple, uh, you can see on the left-hand side there, the temple, that complex there is the temple of Aphrodite. This is the Bema in Corinth. This is where Gallio would have sat and done this. And so I want you to see, particularly in this area, because the ruins are so good and you can, you can date them so well, that you're going to see a lot of historical connections that really validate the book of Acts. So let's summarize. Paul goes into Corinth, spends 18 months there. He builds a church. Now, when you read the letters that he's going to write back to them, he wrote the letter 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, also wrote at least one other that we know, we just don't have it. But after he left there, after 18 months, he begins to write these letters back. So when you study the book of 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, you're going to say, man, this is a church that's struggling with a lot of stuff, and I want you to understand why. Now that you know how they grew up and what they thought and how they thought the gods behaved and their morality. They didn't have any morality. In fact, in the ancient world, to say that you lived like a Corinthian meant that you were absolutely immoral. It was a seaport, it was a rich city, and it was sin city. I mean, it was basically think Las Vegas and Singapore and any other place you can think of, roll it all together. That was Corinth in the ancient world. And so Paul comes in with the gospel it's wildly successful. People believe it. And think about why. They thought that the gods, if they cared about them at all, they were basically indifferent. And that's as good as it got. Most of the gods, they thought, were looking for a reason to punish them if you didn't do your duty and did what you were supposed to. And here comes this Paul, and he says, you know what? You got this right. There is a God, and there is a judgment. But what you have wrong is this. He actually cares about you. 
and he sent his son to die on a cross and be raised from the dead so that you can be reconciled to him and overcome death and you can live in the Father's house forever. Now think about that message compared to this hostile world in which they lived. It was hugely appealing. They believed the truth of that. And so they came to Christ. But because people come to Christ doesn't mean that they immediately forget everything they've been told since they were in elementary school. And that's true for us as well. And I want you to see in the book of uh, 1 Corinthians, Paul's a little harsh with them, but the point is he doesn't expect them to have turned a switch overnight and you all behave exactly like little copies of Jesus Christ. He expects them to continue that process of putting off the old ways of thinking, putting off the old ways of living, and we need to be patient with each other in that way too. We don't need to be compromising with each other in that way. We need to hold to the truth, keep moving to the truth, but we need to preserve our unity in the same way, is that people, when they come to Christ, don't put off their old ways of thinking and their old ways of behaving immediately. And so you're going to see this church is a great template, I think, for modern-day churches. So Paul in Corinth encounters the pagan world, knowing what you know now about what they believed. If it were me, I'd say, I can't believe anybody there actually believed the gospel. And in fact, they came to the gospel, the truth in droves, because Paul didn't pretty it up. He just told them the truth. Paul didn't have any illusions that it was up to him to preach really eloquently or to, you know, entertain them or do something that persuaded them to come to the truth. He understood that his job was to connect with them if he could, to care about them, tell them the truth, and let the Holy Spirit do the response. And then Paul was shrewd enough, wise enough, to use the advantages that he had. He was in a city that the Romans were turning a blind eye, so he had the freedom to preach, so God said, stay there for 18 months. Build a church that's going to last for a long time. A lot of lessons, a lot of transfer to our world as well, in that I think the same lessons are true for us. Because when we go talk to people in our secular world, they don't believe in Sisyphus. They don't believe in Odysseus and the Trojan horse. But they believe some things that are equally absurd, and absolutely equally untrue about the meaning of life. They're also out there chasing the gods of the culture, whether it's fame or fortune or security or happiness, or I wonder if my fifth wife will be the one that finally makes me happy. You know, this is our world in which we go into out there. It's not that different. And I would argue that the, the techniques that Paul uses are the techniques that we should use too. Let's trust the power of the gospel. Let's trust the power of our care for people and then trust God to do what he will with it. Okay? That's Corinth. Your assignment, and we always have an assignment, is this. I want you to relax. When you go talk to your coworkers about what God has done for you, and there will be opportunities this week. There will be opportunities for you this week to just, when someone's struggling to encourage them, when someone asks you a question to say, well, this is what we talked about at my church this week. There are going to be times you're going to have conversations you can say, look, I'm just going to tell you what happened to me. I was lost, and now I'm found. And I have joy in knowing Jesus Christ and in this community of believers, and we'd like for you to join us. You'll have the opportunity to say that. I want you to be bold enough to say it. Don't worry how they're going to react because God will take it from there. Our job is to be faithful, not necessarily to be successful. And God will provide the success. So this week, go spread the word like Paul did, but hopefully don't get put on trial. I'll see you guys next week. We're going to talk about Ephesus and things really break loose there.
I'll see you next week.